Welcome to Changing Waters, a series about our oceans, the people whose livelihoods depend upon their health, and those who work to keep them healthy. Um, I'm Thane Jensen, co-host of the show with my friend and colleague Brad Warren. Um, our broadcast today is a production of the Global Ocean Health Network, a program of the National Fisheries Conservation Center, and is distributed by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Today, we are in Portland, Oregon, at the headquarters of the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission. Uh, and I am speaking with the longtime executive director of that uh, commission, Randy Fisher. Um, and Randy, introduce yourself. And I know you, uh, because we have been friends a long time, a long experience in the fisheries world. But why don't you tell our listeners uh, about your, your background and experience? Yeah, I've been here about a little over 25 years. Prior to that, I was a director of Oregon Fish and Wildlife for almost eight years. Um, I'm not a biologist. I was brought into Oregon Fish and Wildlife to take care of some budget issues that they were having at the time. So that's how far back I go. But that's all changed a lot. I, I, as somebody who uh, has uh, been involved in at least observing fisheries, management here on the Pacific Coast myself for the past uh, several decades. Uh, this has been a not only dynamic, but a challenging, in your case, 33 years in the fisheries uh, management business. Uh, was that a, <laughs> a fair description of it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I first started, um, the big issues at the time were basically spotted owls, which is not a fishery issue, but that was the big thing at the time. Oregon has changed dramatically over those the years that I've been here, um, going from mainly timber-type activities to high-tech, uh, more high-tech than anything. So the public has changed, and the fisheries are becoming more complicated daily. So, Well, your mention of the, the spotted owl uh, highlights one of the issues that we'll definitely be talking about, and that is the role of the Endangered Species Act, and in particular, the listing uh, of salmon that started uh, affecting not only fisheries here in Oregon, but throughout the Pacific Northwest and Alaska, and continues to do so now for, for many decades. And then additional listings that have further complicated that. But let's start talking, uh, start out by talking more about the commission itself. Uh, tell us about the history of the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission and uh, its role and what uh, your own responsibilities are. Sure. So to give everybody a little history, there are three commissions in the United States. There's one in the Atlantic, one in the Gulf, and then we, I run the one here on the Pacific. Um, our commission is 73 years old this year. Um, it was set up originally uh, as a compact, so the states of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, California, and Alaska joined. And the idea was to share research information between the, the states so that there wasn't duplication going on, those sorts of things. So we, um, we're a little, the largest of the three commissions. We have a staff that range. We have a permanent staff of about 230 people. Um, now we're hiring again, so we'll go up to about 600. Here in Portland, we have uh, about 50 people. Uh, we manage the West, uh, West Coast uh, databases for all of the commercial landings, all the re recreational landings on the West Coast in Alaska. Um, we have a law firm and retainer back in Washington, D.C., so we lobby on behalf of the states. So every year we have an annual meeting that 
that moves between the states, um, so changes every year. And at that annual meeting, they we discussed the hot issues of the year, like whale entanglements, threatened endangered species, um, all sorts of things uh, for about a day and a half. And then we, they, each of the states split out and have meetings, and then they give uh, uh, us, the staff, and the lobbying firm, Brad, um, direction in terms of how they want us to lobby every year. So we do a lot on behalf of the states. We Our overhead rate's about 12%, a little over 12%. So we do a lot of hiring on behalf of the states and the federal government. So that's kind of what we do. All right. And so uh, looking through, uh, hopefully, the uh, website for the commission, I couldn't help but notice that uh, you have been the longest serving director by far in this organization. Uh, 25 years, I believe, this year, right? Yeah, a little more, yes. So what do you attribute your longevity to? Um, (laughs) I would guess it's... Mainly, we try to fly under the radar. We don't we don't advertise a lot about what we do. We're not in competition with the states. We're here to help them. Um, that's probably one of the main reasons. Because if you stick your nose up in the air, somebody's going to bat it around. So that's we just try to get the job done on behalf of the states and and, and manage everything on a low overhead rate. So, as a practical matter, how does the commission? Uh, itself function? Do you get direction and guidance and policy issues from your commissioners? Uh, we do at the annual meeting. And if there's some other issue that I think is uh, important, then I will you know, talk to the state directors. So each of the commissions, the commissioners we have, I work for 15 people. There's a senator or representative from the state. There's a head of fish and wildlife from the state. And then there's somebody appointed by the governor. So that's the formal setup. So every state gets one vote at the annual meeting, and we actually go through a process of formally voting on every resolution that comes up to to us. If there's conflict between the states, then we won't move forward. Uh, We try to make sure that everybody's in agreement. All right. Yes. So as a practical matter, how often does that conflict occur? Or have you been able to work pretty much with unanimity over the years you've been uh, head of the commission? Pretty much. There hasn't been a lot of conflict. The only conflict ever that I recall came up related to Threatened Dangerous Species Act. That was, I mean, the states couldn't agree exactly what to do in terms of marine mammals. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, the uh, the history and evolution of fisheries management, um, because this is something that impacts uh, the work you do on a daily basis and has for years. And uh, talking about uh, that history, um, when did we really begin to see uh, a strong federal presence uh, first in uh, in fisheries management here on the Pacific Coast? Well, that, I mean, that probably goes back to uh, when I was, I was actually in Washington for a number of years uh, in state government there as a deputy chief of staff uh, for John Spellman. And it goes back clear to the Salmon Wars um, where the whole issue of the bull decision and, and the split on how to deal with the tribes versus 
everybody else in terms of fisheries. So that's probably where it really started firing up a lot. Okay, that's a great segue to what what has to be the most uh, challenging of all of the species uh, that uh, uh, you have a role in managing here in the Pacific Coast, and that's salmon. And you mentioned the salmon wars. So talk a little bit about that, because I suspect a lot of listeners aren't familiar with it, and probably a lot even familiar with uh, the Bolt decision. So, Yeah, originally, I mean, it was an issue uh, between the tribal um, nations in Washington and basically the recreational fishermen. And the issue came down to how to split out the allocation between the tribes and everybody else, whether it's commercial land or recreational. The interesting thing about it is, is that originally, um, I th- the tribes were basically ready to offer up 29% of the fish, so they wanted an allocation of 29%. And, and the recreational and the commercial guys said, no way, we're going to, we want more. And when the bold decision happened, it came down to the fact that the tribes get 50% of the harvestable surplus of the fish. So that's what ended up happening. So now what we do is everybody calculates how many harvestable fish are available, and the tribes get 50%, and everybody else gets the other 50%. Well, you know, let's talk even a little bit more about uh, the uh, the history of that conflict, because uh, as I recall it, the, uh, the salmon um, harvest was principally accomplished by the non-Indians all the way up until that Bolt decision came down. And that was because these the treaties that the United States entered into with these Indian tribes here in the Pacific Northwest, dating back to the 1850s, uh, which obligated the United States to provide uh, the right to fish in common uh, at their usual and accustomed sites, was really never... Uh, enforced. Uh, and it wasn't until this Bolt decision, Judge Bolt, the federal judge in Tacoma, decided in the, the late 1960s, and then it ultimately went to the United States Supreme Court where it was affirmed, that they, these treaties still had teeth, that they were to be enforced. And suddenly, uh, literally, quite overnight, uh, the, the Indian tribes here in the Pacific Northwest who had treaties uh, were able to look to uh, be a co-manager of the resource and share equally in the, in the abundance. Yeah, it's it's interesting thing because if you if you think about it, and a lot of people have a real heartburn with the tribes, the truth of the matter is, as far as I'm concerned, I've been around this for a long time, as you well know, and that is if it weren't for the tribes, we wouldn't have as many fish as we have today because the Bonneville Power Administration and a number of other these organizations that really – affect the fisheries, they're, they're more worried about the tribes and lawsuits by the tribes than they are anything else. So my opinion is if it weren't for the tribes, we wouldn't be as good a shape as we are right now. That's actually a great insight and, and uh, something that I hadn't really appreciated until you just said it. And yeah, again, by way of background, these uh, large uh, number of uh, hydro, big hydropower projects were all um, built, installed on the Columbia River system beginning in the late 1930s, all of which uh, at some point blocked migration of salmon. And as a consequence, there were 
some mitigation through hatcheries, the so-called Mitchell Act, a federal enactment, but those were all below the dams. Uh, for, and it wasn't until, again, the Indians finally were able to to uh, persuade the courts that those treaty rights that they had um, were uh, meaningful, that suddenly there became a necessity, really, to ensure salmon migration beyond those yeah, dams. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so tell us, uh, in speaking, let's talk a little bit more about salmon, because the wars over salmon didn't end with uh, the Supreme Court and the treaty rights. Um, and you alluded in part to it, and that is um, the Endangered Species Act and those listings. What, what, what has been the, the complication and issue there? Well, that's, that's another interesting one because we're sitting here on the edge of the Willamette River, and this river basically has been run to ensure uh, wild fish. The interesting thing about it is if we were allowed to have more hatchery fish, you would see a huge fishery out here. So one of the issues that, you know, that I think we have to get over as, as, a, as almost an amendment to the act is to say, you know what, we're just going to allow this river to be a hatchery fishery or hatchery and wild fishery. Now we're under the restraints of the Threatened and Endangered Species Act. Um, you can't do that. And that's a problem. Uh, you have an option. You can go to the God Squad, which are the head of the federal agencies, and say, guess what? We're going to write off the Willamette. And they could do that in theory uh, and get around the act. But the act now doesn't allow that sort of thing to happen. And I think that's a shame, to tell you the truth. Because if you look at what goes on in this river or you look at what goes on in Puget Sound, I mean... You know, we're not going to change the habitat. It's not going to go back the way it was in 2000 or 1900 or something. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned a couple of things, too, that probably uh, require some elaboration. The Willamette, uh, for those who don't know, is a tributary, probably a very large tributary, the second, I guess, largest tributary yeah. of the Columbia River. Uh, and it enters the Columbia about a hundred rivers up my upriver from the ocean. And it is uh, the river that uh, Portland considers its own probably. Um, and it's a river that had uh, importance for the, for the treaty tribes, but it has also sustained a, a non-treaty uh, recreational fishery in particular here for, for a hundred years or more. Yeah. And of course we're talking about salmon, probably the iconic species of the Northwest. I mean, it's, it's importance is beyond economic. It's socially important. It's culturally important. Uh, it's uh, commercially important. Uh, and it's environmentally important. I mean, it, it there's, it's, uh, um, its criticality is something that I think probably is, um, when you look at the history of the Endangered Species Act, I think it probably is the single, uh, had the single biggest impact uh, on the act, uh, at least from my observation. Was that something you, that consistent with your own experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at, you know, once again, I mean, the amount of money that's spent every year on salmon is humongous out of Bonneville Power Administration, Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA Fisheries. Um, and if you look at congressionally, it's extremely important. 
and there have been a lot of you know people that are uh, that are very supportive of the whole issue of salmon, including you know the Alaskan senators and and everyone. So what we're all trying to do is you know it's it's a balance between how many hatchery fish you have, what you're doing with the environment, and what you're doing in terms of allowing catch. Yeah, you know, again, by way of background, I, my recollection, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that these listings, the first petitions to list um, salmon under the Federal Endangered Species Act date back to the early 90s. I want to say it was the Idaho sockeye runs that were yeah. was the first, but that was followed in fairly rapid succession by other Columbia River species, particularly the upriver ones, again, where migration has been threatened by hydropower dams in particular, but loss of habitat as well. And then uh, by other salmon runs, uh, not only along the Columbia River, but in coastal streams and Oregon and Washington and in California. Uh, and because their migratory patterns extend into Alaska, it has also necessarily implicated those Alaskan salmon fisheries as well. And even the other non-salmon fisheries where salmon ends up being a bycatch species. Correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Southeast Alaska, most of the fish that are caught there are out of the Columbia. So when you start looking at, and internationally because of, we, of the Canadian Treaty, which was just basically almost reauthorized this year, it was, in fact. And so there's this whole, it's not only whether or not you're catching them in the Columbia or off of our coast, it's whether or not you're catching them in Canada or Alaska or any of those places in between. And and to complicate the issues even more now is with climate change, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to deal with salmon in California because the hot, the water temperatures, we're starting to see a lot of changes fast. Well, climate change is such an important category that it deserves a, a much longer discussion, and we will definitely uh, get into that in just a moment. I wanted to talk a little bit more about salmon, and again, just for the benefit of our listening audience, though, about the Endangered Species Act, because once those uh, species are listed, in this case salmon, um, then there's a whole spate of restrictions and laws that uh, and regulatory impacts that occur. Um, and maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, and you, you even made reference to the, the so-called God Squad, but I, I suspect that there's a lot of people that are wondering just exactly what that is and, and why these uh, the Endangered Species Act listings become so important and so impactful. Well, basically, they become impactful because it limits the amount of catch you can have. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, the bottom line here really with salmon is whether you're a recreational fishery or your commercial fisheries, it's a way of life. Um, if commercial fisheries, it's definitely a way of life because that's how they make their living. So a lot of the communities are dependent upon it. When you start dealing with a threatened and endangered species act, they're limited by how many of those wild fish you can take. And so you do the calculations on, so you got to have a certain amount of returning fish in order to make sure that they perpetuate through time. So then you do the calculations and you say, well, you can't fish. Um, you can only catch X amount of fish, period, 
um, in order to protect those wild fish. So it becomes a, it's, it's a total constraint. So if you're really running out of wild fish, then you've got a problem. And that's what we're all trying to deal with. Yeah, and of course, with with salmon, we're talking about a species that travels, what, thousands of miles yeah. during the course of its lifetime. And of course, during that thousand miles, it isn't staying in a single state uh, or even in a single country. And uh, uh, for that reason, if you're going to be successful, even in part, in trying to recover the species, you're going to have to have coordination among the various states, federal governments, including Canada, uh, as well as Alaska. And you've got two different fisheries, regional fisheries management councils that you've got to deal with as well, but, right? The yeah. Pacific, which is what, Oregon, Washington, and California, and then the North Pacific Council. Right, which is just Alaska, basically. But And then you have the other issues that we deal with here on the Columbia specifically, and that is um, we actually pay people to catch a fish called pike minnow, which eats small salmon going down the river. You've got birds that eat small salmon going down the river. You've got sea lions. So you have all of these other issues that you got to deal with because it's not just people catching the fish. It's everything else that's involved in the environment also. Yeah. And, and as, as we've noticed over a period of time in the Columbia specifically, um, other game fish are coming in, walleye, pike, everything else, and they are also having an effect on small salmon. So... It's a complicated issue. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. And by Coastal Protection Engineering, a new name in the coastal engineering industry made up of professionals that are anything but new to coastal restoration. With offices in Florida and North Carolina, this multidisciplinary team provides clients with a full suite of professional services for beach nourishment, coastal resiliency, inlet management, and navigation projects. This is a great team with well-respected industry, leading professionals, and strong credentials. Working with local, state, and federal clients, they have the horsepower to handle large-scale coastal restoration projects. But as a small business in this ever-changing coastal environment, they understand the need to respond and adapt quickly to every client's unique challenges. Check out CPE at CoastalProtectionENG.com or follow them on LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So how are we doing? Uh, are we are we winning the war or... Uh, or is it too early to tell? Or what are the what are the challenges that we still face with regard to, to salmon recovery? I say we're we've won the war in some instances. Um, the returns here on the Willamette this year probably aren't what they should be, um, and we've seen in a, and a lot of that was due to sea lions at the right at the sea lion predation big time 
25% of the stock has been eaten by sea lions. We're down to winter steelhead on the Willamette, which is here, to about 400 fish maybe. So they're almost done. So, and again, maybe for the benefit of our listening audience, so sea lions, which are in turn, what, protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and other federal law, so they are major predators of the salmon. And this year, finally, for the first time in my 40 years that I've been involved in this thing, the Congress actually and the Senate and everybody in the president signed it, allows for lethal take of sea lions for a first time in forever, basically. And that will make a difference because, you, like you mentioned, um, they're protected by the Marine Mammal Act, and there's nothing we could do, really, until this year. So now we are actually trapping sea lions at the dams and at the Willamette Falls, and that should make a, a big difference. What about climate change, on, uh, particularly as it affects, we'll talk about it first as it affects salmon, but it's, it's obviously a much broader uh, and more important issue than, uh, than just a, a salmon impactor. How has climate change affected uh, the work of the commission and fisheries generally here on the Pacific coast and including up into Alaska? Well, what we're, what we're seeing is that the climate of California is moving north. Now, what that means, basically, is that for salmon, in specific, specifically for salmon, it means warmer water, harder for reproduction, uh, more predators, you know, all of that kind of thing happening. Um, if you go up further into Alaska, you're seeing changes because of everything's moving north. Um, so we don't know exactly, but we know what's going on. If you look at the snow melt now here in Oregon, it's you know 110 percent of normal in some cases, which is really great. But we're looking at the fact that um, streams are drying up sooner, um, and that's an issue. So, what uh, what are the biggest single factors then uh, that uh, that determine whether or not a, a salmon run? And we're talking about. It isn't a single salmon species. It's the Chinook or King salmon. You've got uh, sockeye or, or red salmon. You've got coho or silvers, as they're known. And, and then up in Alaska, you've got chump salmon or pink salmon and, um, as well. What determines whether or not uh, those salmon will survive their multi-year ordeal and return to, to their uh, natal streams and spawn? What are the biggest single factors involved? Oh, the biggest single factors. That's an interesting question. I don't, I think it's more, I think it's dependent on where you are more than anything. I mean, I think that if you look at Southern California or parts of California, I think they are in real trouble. It's because of water. Um, Not enough of it and and too warm. And too warm. Yep. That's a big issue. Sacramento, which is a huge system. Klamath, we've had troubles for years in the Klamath, and that's a total water issue. Um, you know, they want to remove the dams on the Klamath. That hasn't happened yet. If that does happen, that will be good. If you look at West Coast fisheries, a lot of them, the commercial fisheries are driven by what happens on the Klamath. Um, because once again, those fish are listed, and so you've got a certain number that you can catch, and therefore they shut off the commercial fishery. Uh, if you look in diff- 
if you come up to Oregon and Washington, you're once again, you're looking at the Columbia system and what's happening here. Uh, you go further north and you're into Canadian fisheries, same thing. I mean, it's all related to what the water conditions are and food and upwelling. Um, you know, the issues that we've been having is you, we got off of Oregon and the West Coast, the California drift that they refer to, um, there was not enough upwelling. And as a result of that, there wasn't any feed. So you put fish out there to eat something and there's nothing for them to eat. Okay. The upwelling is this is the colder water that's Correct. rich in nutrients that is critical for yes. survival of not only salmon, Absolutely. but other fish generally. Yeah. Um, so, and, and just again, to give a broader perspective on salmon. So is it, most of the salmon are heading north for their, uh, during the course of their, uh, lives at sea. Is that correct? I mean, they're, yeah, the, the ones out, well, you have South turning salmon also, but most of them out of where we are here, they have north. All right. And yet when they return, they're returning, uh, collectively, you get a so-called mixed stock return, so that you've got some fish coming back into the Columbia and its system, others coming into the coastal streams, others coming back into to uh, the Klamath or or further south, the Sacramento right. system. Um, and in order to save them or to to help at least limit their mortality, you've got to limit or constrain the amount of fish that are caught, particularly in the ocean. Correct. All right, and that means just basically what you're 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 managing you're you're limiting the seasons that uh, or the length of the season. Right. Yeah, and so everybody understands they don't all coho come back at a different time. So you have fish coming back at different times. So you're not out there fishing on all of them at the same time. So uh, you you split the seasons up that way. Um, and then you do the calculations on what is the harvestable surplus, and then you open the fishery, and we watch the fishery closely. Some people thought that you can manage it uh, by tagging certain fish, and if you catch them, then you would analyze that, and then you could open the fishery or close it off daily. Well, that's that's not real. I mean, you can't do that. It would be so expensive; it wouldn't be funny, and it just doesn't. It's not practical. So. We try to manage around, you know, dates and general that kind of thing. All right, and that's the 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 process. And is it fair to call it a negotiating process in part, at least, uh, or is it well, is it, it really a, driven by the science? Well, it's a negotiating process to start with because you you're going to the councils, Pacific Council or the North Pacific Council. First of all, I have to figure out how many fish can caught. Then you have the negotiations between the allocations of those fish. Is it a commercial fishery or is it going to be recreational or what's it going to be? So they have to go through all that. What we do here at the commission is we supply them the information. We don't make the management decisions. We just give them the information. We used to argue over the numbers. People don't argue over the numbers anymore. They argue over the allocation. All right. And that's what our job is here. So we're neutral territory. Um, people don't argue about our numbers. They they just argue about who should catch it. All right. And so when you say they don't argue about our numbers, what I'm hearing you say is that the science of uh, predicting the, the likelihood of returning abundance, if you will, is pretty well established uh, yes. these days. Um, and I presume that climate change itself, I mean, it, maybe in Washington, D.C., in some quarters, there's some 
a dispute about it, but is it fair to say that it's a widely accepted phenomenon here in the fisheries management world? Yes, I think that's fair to say, definitely. Yeah. And how is it, again, going back to, to the, the practicalities of climate change, what kind of research uh, is being done to, uh, to find out what not only the impacts uh, will be in the short run, but in the longer term, and what kind of uh, what are the impacts that's going to have not only on salmon fisheries but on ocean conditions um, and uh, the uh, the other fisheries throughout the, the North Pacific and Pacific Coast that that the commission uh, deals with. Well, I think well, NOAA fisheries themselves are doing a lot of study trying to figure out. Okay, NOAA fisheries just begin to be care. That's the federal national National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Correct. And they're the, the people that at the federal level, the primary federal fisheries agency, although they're assisted by, I guess, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, at least when those salmon enter uh, freshwater. The, in freshwater, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, so NOAA Fisheries has been, uh, NOAA has been doing a lot of climate change activities. We are only involved because uh, we're, we're looking at now um, changes in the ocean off of uh, Newport, specifically. We're getting involved in aquaculture uh, here, and part of the issue there is, so if you have a warm blob like we do off the West Coast in some years. Just an, an area that is much warmer than the surrounding waters? Correct. How and, large are these blobs? Um, well, the one off Newport was huge you know i mean i don't mean i don't know how many miles it was but what it does is it affects like the dungeness crab fishery big time we shut off all the fisheries because of demoic acid which is a, a result of warmer water basically no upwelling um so that's a phenomena based on um well we think it's climate change but we're not you know i mean who knows what it is but that's what happens every few years so we're looking at issues like that so we can help determine whether or not the fishery should move forward because of the amount of food that will be available for whether it's Dungeness crab or whether it's salmon or whether it's whatever. So that's some of the studies that are happening right now. So as far as the technology is, how do you, as a practical matter, do you, do you uh, monitor um, ocean conditions? I mean, how is that done? Well, uh, NOAA Fisheries has a number of buoys out there that are taking samples daily in terms of temperature and salinity and all those sorts of things. Um, once again, we aren't specifically directly involved in that, but we are involved in the sense of being able at some point, hopefully being able to predict whether or not ocean conditions are going to be safe, favorable for salmon fry that go out or whether or not it's not going to be. And in, in two years, you're going to have to really cut back on the fishery. I mean, ideally, that's what would happen. How far into the future are you able to confidently predict what ocean conditions will look like? Uh, probably, well, every once in a while, you'll see them come out and say there's going to be an El Nino or El Nite or, or whatever it's going to be. And that's usually about a year out in advance. Besides that, I mean, it's difficult. Apart from that, that you're, you're really yeah. into a little guesswork. Thing. Yeah. You mentioned El Nino, and again, for those uh, who may not be familiar with that uh, phenomenon, what is it? 
it's basically a warming of uh, changing in the atmosphere. So you, you're end up with a lot warmer ocean than, than we had before. More rain, usually warmer conditions. And then it's, uh, and I'm using the term uh, jokingly, it's it's evil twin La Nina, right? Yes. Which is, and, and that's just the, the yes. opposite. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and is there a cycle that uh, seems to be, or a pattern that those those uh, the El Nino La Nina phenomena follow? I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. So it's really something that has a, a profound effect on on fisheries and ocean conditions, but still we're not certain whether there is an established pattern or if there is what it is. Correct. Yeah. Um, so what about the, in terms of the importance of fisheries generally, uh, and, and as you mentioned, you, you actually pay attention to both the commercial and recreational fisheries. Correct. Right. But it's, I presume the commercial in terms of the, both the amount of time you devote to it and just their overall importance is is uh, predominantly commercial. Is that that fair? Yeah, we don't. Um, well, we still can't. Well, we do both things. We count all the recreational catch. We count all the commercial catch. Um, the most exp- the most lucrative fishery on the west coast, the one that pays the most money, is Dungeness crab, which is. You know, not salmon, and it's not groundfish, not anything else. Uh, that by far is the most lucrative, meaning best income for the West Coast and, and all of the communities that are affected by that fishery. All right, and and just again, so we're clear that we're talking about the the Washington, Oregon, California Dungeness crab fishery, uh, which I guess extends into to a portion of. Um, well, certainly Canada and a little bit of Southeast Alaska, even correct. Yeah, the bulk of it though is on. I mean, if you deal with just, yeah, it does, but we're mostly concentrating on just Washington, Oregon, and California. Okay. And how is that fishery managed, and why is it so important? Um, in theory, uh, the fishery opens December one uh, to take advantage of the Christmas season. And it's managed by the commercial fleet can only allow, you're only allowed to catch male crab. And they have to be a little over six inches in size on the back. Um, so it's managed, and it's been managed that way for 35, 40 years. Yeah, it's a, a sex season size, as I always yes. think of it, uh, management regime. But it, it, as, as I understand it, that has really worked well to sustain the, the ocean Dungeness crab fishery because you you make sure you don't harvest them during the time they're molding and basically breeding, if you will, and you don't keep the females. And you can throw them back with a fair amount of confidence they'll survive. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a very well man. I mean, it, it works out very well, actually. Um, we've had a few problems with uh, the whole thing of warm water and domoic acid with them. Basically, the, it's managed by the um, processing folks and the market because they want to make sure that there's 25% meat in each of the crabs before they'll take it to the market. So we actually do test fisheries that manage out of here. And we have a thing called the Tri-State uh, Dungeness Crab um, Council Committee that uh, watches this closely. And um, so that's how the process has worked. So, a uh, Dungeness crab, of course, that's 
what we always associate with the Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, and, and uh, but it's uh, it's equally important. I, I, looking just looking at the numbers, I was surprised to see just how more valuable it is than any other species here in the in yeah. the three western states. Yeah. So. Um, but you talked about domoic acid. Is that something that appears to be related to climate change as well? I would guess so, yes. Yeah. Probably. And that's a, what is that, uh, one of these algal blooms that... Uh, Correct. So, are, and then what they do is you watch, like, uh, crabs will eat razor clams, and so razor clams may get domoic acid in them, so you'll shut down not only the razor clam fishery, you know, fishery, um, but then the effect goes right to Dunedin's crab. The biggest fear we have now is the uh, entanglement with whales. And yeah, let's talk about that because that's uh, this is fairly recent, uh, as I understand it. Yes, it's this, and California just did a just settled a lawsuit um, last week uh, for a couple of years, and, and basically what that lawsuit says they've divided up California by districts. And if you this is the ocean you're talking ocean, about, ocean correct? And if they get a whale entangled in one district, then they can shut the fishery down in that area. Um, and if they see twenty or more whales in one area, they can shut that fishery down in that area. And so the entanglements occur because they they use pots, right, or traps for uh, right. to catch the crab that are resting on the bottom of the pots, are and they're then their location is marked by a, a rope or a line, if you will, attached to buoys, correct? Correct. And yeah. then is it just the kind of the intensity of the location of these buoys and traps that, that causes the whales to become entangled as they migrate? Yeah, most of the whales are humpback whales. And if you know what a humpback whale looks like, they have huge fins that go off to the side. And when they go through crab pots, I mean, each crab fisherman is allowed seven, five to 700 pots out there. So you're dealing in thousands of pots. So um, the issue is when to shut the fishery off. Most of the whales are coming up in April, early April. So in California, they've decided now to shut the fishery down April the 1st. Um, and that should help quite a bit. Um, but we have had a number of whale. Last year, I think there were 78 whale entanglements that we know of. And so the whales pick up these Dungeness crab pots and they get entangled. And some of them... They go out and try and cut the pots off. That's very difficult. It's dangerous. Um, so we're trying to figure out ways of uh, alleviating that problem, whether it's crab pots that don't have lines. Um, they're looking into that kind of thing, but I don't know how well that would work because you wouldn't know whether you're dumping your pots on somebody else's pots and all that kind of stuff. So You, you mentioned um, the, uh, the lawsuit that, uh, that prompted this. Um, this too is something that I suspect you've seen a lot of over the many decades you've been involved in in, the, in fisheries management is the role of litigation and lawsuits. Uh, is that fair? And of course, that's, that's what I do for a living too. So <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I mean, the problem with the lawsuits, I think, to some degree, is that it, it, you know much better than I do that um, who pays for it. I mean, it doesn't necessarily cost anybody to go sue somebody, especially if the government loses, because guess what? The government's paying for it. So that's part of the issue, I think. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, the reality is that 
the federal environmental laws that were passed in the 1970s, beginning with the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, but then extending into the Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, uh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. There's a number of them, but but many of them, the Endangered Species Act is one, uh, actually uh, provide for an award of attorney's fees to a prevailing party. And of course, that's one of the if not an incentive, it is certainly um, something that um, helps promote um, uh, the uh, the willingness to file a lawsuit. And, and many of these are done, of course, in the name of environmental groups whose, whose mission is to conserve the species. And um, there's, I don't think there's any doubt that the vast majority are brought by uh, well-intentioned folks concerned about this, but it's a it's a pretty blunt instrument uh, sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have a sense? Uh, I mean, just thinking about it is uh, is the role of litigation on balance been a, a positive one, or or can you be a little more nuanced about it? And or is there something that should be done to to maybe curb the um, the proliferation of these lawsuits as they affect uh, the way we we deal with fisheries management? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, um, if I were to look back and, and think about the lawsuits that, that deal with um, some of the marine mammal issues specifically, um, I think it's been a little unfair. I think if you look at some of the lawsuits that were related to wolves or some of the other animals that we're concerned about, I think that part of the issue really comes down to whether or not the environmental group or the NGO or whoever it may be is uh, making sure that they uh, uh, are getting more members. That's part of the issue. I mean, how you know? I mean, it's one thing to take a picture of a baby seal and say, "Oh, this is terrible." You know, we we got to protect every one of these. Well, we have seven hundred fifty thousand seals, and sea lions, and it's causing a huge issue. Yeah, that's so, one of the, the uh, I think, lesser-known uh, facts, particularly with sea lions, is that we're not talking about a threatened or endangered species there. We're talking about record levels of abundance, uh, yes. for the most part. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, you we mentioned uh, the whales, the humpbacks in particular, and I guess they're blue whales that are impacted by the crab fishery, one of the other uh, whale species that's been in the news a lot in the fisheries world here in the Pacific Northwest recently is the orca whale, and in particular that southern resident uh, population. What, what's what's the issue there? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, on the West Coast in Alaska, there's there's basically two groups of, of killer whales. There's what I call the biker killer whales. Those live off the West Coast, and they basically... Um, feed on marine mammals and other things, seals, sea lions. And then the threatened and endangered, or the ones they're worried about, are basically in the Pacific Puget Sound area and the San Juan Island area. And they basically just eat uh, Chinook salmon, large Chinook salmon. They're kind of targeted on Chinook salmon that weigh like 30 pounds. So that group is uh, in trouble, and that's an issue. It's a serious issue. We're working with the Canadians trying to figure out what to do, whether or not we're, one of the options now is to increase hatchery production to try and take care of it. Um, so they're just not calving, um, and that's a problem. 
Yeah, I was surprised when I looked uh, into this issue in preparation for our conversation today. And uh, there's less, it's like 75 members uh, I mean, yeah. in total yeah. of that uh, those southern resident population. And they eat, at least they should be eating, 100 to 300 pounds of salmon a day. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, at some point. So what what are the options? Just more hatchery, you mentioned increased hatchery production. Are there any other options on the table there that could help address well, that issue? I haven't heard of any. I think they actually had a last, I heard the other day that there was one that they've actually had a calf this year, which would be the first time in a number of years. And then, you know, earlier last year, that killer whale drug its baby around dead for two weeks, which was just totally sad. And so that really highlighted the the issue. I mean, people, you know, they know every one of the whales up there by name, basically. So you know what you're dealing with. Like you said, 75 is getting to a point where they may not be sustainable. Yeah, it's clearly a, a, an endangered species. So let's talk about climate change a little bit more as it relates to the North Pacific. Are, are we seeing uh, effects up there as well? Yeah, uh, I mean, the fisheries are moving further north. I mean, the biggest fishery in, in the North Pacific is hay. Um, and, and that, they know, are moving north. And so Was it the pollock or the... Yeah, yeah, pollock, yeah, yeah. basically the pollock fishery. What we call is, whiting or hake, is that, yeah. I guess it used to be. A, and it's species. a billion-dollar fishery. I mean, this is big-time stuff. Um, and there's a couple of concerns. There's a number of uh, concerns by some of the various uh, communities up there over whether or not that fishery has taken salmon as a bycatch in a large number. I don't think that's been proven yet necessarily. Um, the other concern are crab fisheries up there because of changing climate change. Those are the king crab king and crab. the paleo crab, yes. yes. Yeah. So there are some concerns about that. Um, we've been paying disaster money into the Yukon system uh, because the salmon returns are real low. Um, and we've been doing a number of research projects up there for, uh, to try and figure out what's going on with, with those stocks, specifically the Yukon. It's huge river, uh, huge fisheries, uh, supports like 27 villages up into the Yukon system. I was looking at the value of those uh, and the volume of catches. And Alaska is clearly our largest fishery nationally. Um, and uh, uh, the, the pollock fishery, you're, you're right, it's, it's by far the most valuable. So you mentioned um, the issue with bycatch. And again, what, what do we mean by that? And, and, uh, and how, do you, how do you address it? Well, bycatch is basically related to a trawl fishery where they're actually, uh, it's a mixed stock fishery, so you're, you're dragging a large net around um, trying to catch whatever you're targeting. So a bycatch is if you're targeting um, pollock, for example, you may run into some salmon. So the bycatch there would be the salmon. You're not targeting that fishery, but you're, uh, you're actually catching those. So that's, the, that's what bycatch is all about. And that basically affects every commercial fishery where you're net fishing um, or even long line fishing, uh, actually, because you'd still get bycatch on that also. But that's what it's about. Okay. One of the, uh, the ways in which uh, we've seen um, concerns about 
fisheries uh, and oceans generally addressed in in recent years has been these marine protected areas. Do you and maybe you can talk a little bit about them as well? And and is that something that uh, that we've seen here uh, used as a tool? And and what's been your experience with it? Well, um, marine protected areas were base, have been basically set up over the last, I don't know, I'd say probably most of them over the last 20 years or less. Um, the idea was that you can set almost like a, a park, like Yellowstone or something, where you are actually protecting everything that's in there. And as a result of that, you'll produce more fish on the outside, ultimately. Um, there's been a lot of discussions about the success for those. There's been a lot of discussion now. They're protected, basically. So if you're a commercial fisherman, you carry a, a GPS or, or uh, that tells you exactly where you are, and you're not allowed to go into those areas. So we've been monitoring those closely. Um, I don't think there's been a lot of research to figure out whether or not it's been a positive effect by having marine protected areas in terms of being able to produce more fish or not, but that's the idea. What what other kinds of research does the commission involve itself in, and, and how does the commission determine what research to undertake? Um, we basically, well, we have these discussions at our annual meeting about the kind of research that we do here. Um, we, we do research now. We're doing, we just went out with a, request for proposal on aquaculture, some aquaculture facilities, mainly for oysters, not for finfish. So we're not involved in finfish aquaculture on the West Coast or in Alaska. We're involved in aquaculture projects for uh, oysters and seaweed and those sorts of things. So we're doing research on that uh, to try and figure out whether there's genetic differences and those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me uh, that there's been a well, an enormous increase in aquaculture, and particularly as it relates to, to salmon internationally. Uh, I don't know that we've seen that same uh, phenomenon here in the United States, and, and whether that's a good thing or not. I know there's concerns about um, aquaculture and, and particularly uh, for net pens, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there's um, there's a big push now by the Department of Commerce nationally for aquaculture because 90% of the fish that we eat in the United States are actually not from this country. So there's a big concern about that. Um, net pin activities uh, on the West Coast are limited. May, there were some in Port Angeles for a while, and those have now been shut down. Um, and when you do aquaculture on the West Coast, the, the only they've been using Atlantic salmon and not Pacific salmon. But if you think about it, our hatchery system is probably the biggest aquaculture system in the world. If you think about what we do in terms of salmon, because that's basically aquaculture, um, our own facility. So, you know, it's it's an interesting argument when you think about it. Uh, a lot of commercial fishermen don't want to have net pens or um, anything because they're concerned that it will um, replace what they do. Um, so we don't do that. Well, I mean, in fairness, though, there have been, and, and I'm thinking in particular of the, uh, of the problem that was experienced in Puget Sound, I want to say just within the last year or two, where storms occur during the winter months, suddenly these net pens are breached. Uh, you've got uh, uh, 
hatchery fish, uh, these uh, which are a different species. Apparently, they're the 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 more domesticated Atlantic salmon that are suddenly uh, interacting with wild salmon. There's disease concerns because anytime you're you're propagating uh, large numbers of aquacultured fish together, there's an uh, opportunity for disease. The disease then can spread to to, to wild populations that are nearby. Um, and uh, I mean, it seems to be a, a legitimate concern. And yet, as you say, we're in a world where we need to be increasing aquaculture production simply to meet the needs of people and to protect uh, our wild population. So what about closed containment systems that, that are used for some, I know they use it for, for some sturgeon population, yeah. for trout, for, for some yeah. sealhead. Is that a potential solution? I think it probably would be. I mean, I don't, I think it comes down to, you know, the costs. I mean, Warehouser in Newport, as you will probably will recall, had a huge facility where they were actually uh, doing aquaculture, making their own private hatchery almost for coho. And they did that on a calculation of a return of 4%. Well, that never happened. They got about 1% back. And basically the whole thing shut down after a few years because they were losing money on it. So I think it comes down to money to, you know, to a large extent. Um, there's been a lot of work off of California to figure out whether or not you could use uh, old oil derricks that are there existing and whether you could do net pen activities off of those, but they haven't been permitted. The biggest problem everybody's having now is trying to get a permit because there's so many agencies involved and the feds are trying to look at ways of streamlining that whole effort. Um, I don't think you'll ever see off of our coast here, it just doesn't seem practical to do net pen stuff. I mean, it just, you know, the water, it's too deep, all that kind of thing. So I don't think you'll ever see it, number one. And this commission will never support it. So uh, we're not involved in it necessarily. Yeah. Um, so what are the challenges, uh, you know, looking ahead the next couple of years? Uh, what are the largest challenges you face here at the commission and that our fisheries and oceans uh, face? Well, I think trouble, well, climate change, I mean, the effects of what we're learning, obviously, is one of the things that we're trying to figure out. I mean, this whole thing with, if you look at the money aspect of stuff, we already talked about it, but the fear over what's happening with the Dungeness fishery and what that means in the communities is a big issue. Um, the other issue is uh, we are we have more uh, requests for disaster relief because we've been shutting fisheries down. Um, the whole question of what's happening up north and, in terms of uh, the pollock fishery and those sorts of things, there have been some concerns that the recruitment isn't happening fast enough. You're Getting the younger fish essentially to reproduce to sustain the fishery. Yes, if that's you will. correct. And there's concerns over the fleet. I mean, the fleet meaning um, going out and trying to calculate what's going on in the fishery to allow the, the, the like the hake fishery to happen. Um, that's a money issue in terms of being able to use research fish or research vessels. They're very expensive and there's not a lot of money. And that's an issue. So how do we fund it then going forward? It sounds like we've got... Um, some definite needs for more work to be done. Um, how, how are you funded now, and what are the, the funding challenges that, that 
Perfect. So we basically, um, most of the money that comes to us that we do, that we pass through, all comes through the National Marine Fisheries Service um, budget. Which is the federal NOAA federal fisheries budget. Correct. We have a fair, so our, our budget's around 70 million a year, 60 to 70 million. And then we pass most of that money through. So what we do, we go back on behalf of the states and lo help lobby for National Marine Fisheries Service funding of these programs for, the, for all the data programs that we manage here. That money all comes from Congress. So that's how we get our funding. And that's how the states then go out and do what their jobs are. Um, on the Columbia law, a fair amount of the money comes from Bonneville Power Administration. Um, and that's fairly constant. Uh, so whatever happens with the federal budgets is a big concern to all of us that are involved in fisheries. And um, just looking at the, the role of the federal government, I mean, there's always been this tension between um, federal management and state management. Uh, have we got the balance right, do you think? Yeah, I think on the West Coast here, it's it's different in the East Coast. They seem to have more issues than we do here. I mean, I think the management on the West Coast in Alaska seems to be pretty stable. Uh, there seems to be uh, agreement in most cases by what the council does. I mean, there are arguments at the council's level, but I think the fisheries is pretty well. Everybody respects what goes on here. Yeah. So are you an optimist about uh, uh, the health of our oceans and fisheries here on the Pacific Coast going forward? Sure. <laughs> and and well, why do you I, say that? Well, I think I'm an optimist, but I'm a little discouraged in one sense. I mean, what the West Coast and Alaska have functioned well over a number of years because of the people involved and the interest by congressional folks and all that. And when you start losing that interest, then that's a problem. And I think we have seen that a lot with, uh, in, the, in the case, some of the major tribal people have died and gone on, and that's affected what's gone on. So depending on who you have in some of these positions of leadership, of leadership is really, really important. And speaking of, uh, of leadership, what, what what are Randy Fisher's plans for the future? Well, probably just, I still enjoy what I do. Um, and we're fairly influential, actually, in terms of national fisheries activities, uh, probably more than most people know. Uh, like I said, we like to fly under the radar, but we get stuff done. It should be the way that a lot of government works, really. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the line for taking credit that's the long one. It's the, <laughs> the line for getting things done that short. Uh, Randy Fisher, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, uh, there's no question but that uh, the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission enjoys a, um, a, a wonderful reputation nationally, and that's due in no small part to, to your leadership. So thank you. Well, thank you.